In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. We'll be in Song of Songs, chapter 3, verse 6. And we're going to go to the odd ending of chapter 5, verse 1. The Bible begins with a wedding. The Bible ends with a wedding. In the Garden of Eden, we see Adam and Eve married. In Revelation 19, we see Christ and the church and the marriage supper of the Lamb. Marriage. But everything in between that these days, it seems to me that weddings are high-stress events. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and often the role of the minister who's presiding over the wedding is to just keep things calm. <laughs> that has been some of my experience. Um, in fact, it can get so high-strung. Uh, wedding planners say today weddings are more stressful than they've ever been. And in 1995... The Boston Globe coined a phrase which has become a cultural uh, phrase for everyone. They coined the term bridezilla to refer to the bri- <laughs> to refer to what this is how they define it to refer to someone who has forgotten the solemnity of marriage. That was the original use. And that's kind of turned to become like the, my perfect day is not going my way. <laughs> now, we can do that with life. We can become bridezillas in life because we are the bride in this relationship with God. Bridezilla forgets that weddings are not about our love for one another. Weddings are about God's love. That's what the Garden of Eden And the marriage supper of the Lamb show us is that marriage is a visible, wonderful participation of human beings in the ultimate divine love for human beings. When we forget what love is about, we become bridezilla. And we rip people's lives apart and heads off because things aren't going the way that we have planned them. But, fortunately, in the middle of the Bible, there's another wedding. The Song of Songs, we see tonight that the king marries the bride. We have seen for three weeks their courtship, their betrothal, their engagement, and the ways that they are desiring one another. But tonight, the uh, warnings that this is a so-called, I can't tell you how many books use the word erotic book, um, it happens tonight. It is there. Pastor Mike Wisner was here last week, and he I met him at the farmer's market on Thursday, and he said, boy, you got a fun one next week. <laughs> here we are. We've got the fun one. However, um, this is tremendous ground, and I hope that I can lead us into this with um, in, in such a way that we can see what is happening here. We are in, in a sense, the middle of the Bible. We're in the middle wedding between the two weddings at the beginning and the end. And we are at the middle of the Song of Songs. And so we are, in a sense, entering. Remember, Song of Songs is an invitation to the Holy of Holies to commune with God. We are now entering into the center of this Holy of Holies of this book. We are on hallowed ground. So may the Lord help me to use the right words and that my study was not in vain. Um, so what we see tonight as the king leads the bride to her wedding, we see that she is not a bridezilla. In fact, quite the opposite. 
he describes her as the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden that is unlocked. Because the Garden of Eden has been closed off, but not tonight. It is now open. So, let's get right on in um, to the wedding procession. It begins in chapter 3, verse 6. But I do want to remind you, because I think it's worth seeing that, uh, from last week, that what is happening on the right leading up to this wedding procession, right before the wedding day, we remember that this wedding procession is leading the bride out of her dark night of the soul. You may remember last week that we looked at the growing and budding relationship between the bride and the king is one that oscillates from springtime and abundant growth to the dark night, nighttime, and moments of, I don't feel like God's around me, I search for him, I can't find him. The Christian life and Christian growth oscillates between these springtimes and these nighttimes, or um, between heaven and hell, where we feel close to God and then we feel abandoned by God. And this oscillation seems as we grow further into union with God, the oscillations grow further apart so that we are experiencing higher joys in God, but also deeper despair at feeling like, why am I not feeling what I was? Because every time you get so connected with God, anything less than that feels like hell. It feels like life is hard to go through with. But at the same time, we cannot experience the high union with God if we are not willing to look deep within at our sinfulness and our selfishness and get rid of that. And so these highs and lows come with growth, and sometimes they grow more and more intense as we go. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, the low of the low, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These oscillations, especially that dark night where she was in chapter 3, it reminds, it brings us to this brink of despair, but never completely into it, just to the brink. And, and there we realize that there's nothing more we can do but cry for God's mercy. And when we are there, that's when we are ready. The bride has been self-emptied through this dark night. She has emptied herself of her pride, of her presumption. She's emptied herself of any bridezilla monster lurking in her. And now because she's emptied, she is readied for not the dark night, but the great night. And that's the moment when the king comes to her. So chapter three, verse six, the procession goes from the dark night to the wedding night. 3 verse 6. So as she was there, she had that dream, right? She's looking for the king. She she finally finds him, and in her dream, she latches onto him. Now we see the day has come. We don't know how long, how many nights she went through this, but now we see in 3 verse 6, our narrator, or maybe the bride is saying this, what is that, or who is this, coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant. So she's seeing this rising cloud coming up from the distance. And at first you might think it's just the dust being kicked up by maybe a carriage or horses. But as as it comes closer, she realizes that's actually the smoke from so much incense, from myrrh and frankincense, that it looks like a column of smoke leading before the king as he comes. 
Imagine the, the amazing aroma and wealth to produce such incense. So in verse 7, Behold, it is the litter of Solomon, and around it are sixty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, and all of them wearing swords and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. This is the wedding procession come. She's been waiting and now the king has arrived. On the day of the wedding, the bride would not know precisely when the groom would come for her. A typical wedding procession looked like the groom getting ready at his house wearing his finest clothes and as you noticed here, he's wearing a garland, a wedding crown. It was traditional for the bride and groom to wear crowns at their wedding. And Sol- uh, Solomon, well, yeah, Solomon, but uh, the bride, the groom would come and he would gather his friends. They would all be dressed up. They get musicians and singers and even torches if it was toward the evening. Um, and they would have this procession. They would draw attention was the idea. This huge royal procession to go get the bride. And so here it comes. And this is a magnificent procession, as you can see described here. Um, they would go. They would get the bride. And the mother and the father of the bride would come. And all the, her friends who are waiting, they would come with the groom back to his house. So the procession's now even bigger and the music's louder and there's dancers and there's singers. And as they were coming down the way back to the groom's house, people who knew them would hear all the noise and they would join in the procession and, oh, the wedding's happening. Very different than the RSVP we send out today. A little more fanfare, right? And a lot more spontaneity. Um, and so they would come back to the, the husband's house and there um, the the mother and father of the bride and the groom would escort the bride and the groom into the wedding chamber. It was, it was a little hut, a tent or a room set up in the midst of the celebration for them to consummate their marriage. While, as I'm told, everyone waits outside. (laughs) At which point... They come out blushing or elated or what, you know, however they look. They come out and the seven-day celebration begins. So family and friends drop in and out and there's always food provided. Sort of like a big open house, right? They drop in and out for the next seven days. That's weddings. But they aren't planning everything perfectly, right? Others are doing this for them. Exactly. Less pressure, <laughs> except for that moment in the tent. That's come on. Okay, so many jokes you guys are thinking about. Let's just yeah, let's move on. Uh, that's the typical wedding procession. Um, we see that this is happening, but the language here in Song of Songs is intentional in the way it's describing the king's arrival. See what we see here is not just a typical wedding procession. We see that the king is coming for the bride, and then he leads her through the wilderness to the promised land, to Jerusalem. 
The image is meant to look like the Exodus story. Look at the first verse, 3 verse 6. What is that coming up from the wilderness? Here we go. This is the Exodus story. And what is coming up out of the wilderness? What's leading this procession? The first thing that's seen is a column of smoke. We know in Exodus 13 and throughout the story that God led his people through a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire and obviously some smoke by night. And here we have the pillar leading them. But this pillar is all incense. Oh, speaking of the incense, this also is reminiscent of the Exodus because there in the middle of the wilderness, Moses was given instructions by God on how to construct the tabernacle where Israel would worship. And part of the details in Exodus are that myrrh was part of the anointing oil. It was a mixture, but myrrh was one of the key components of the oil that they would use in anointing uh, the tent and the holy, the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies and the utensils used to serve God and the high priest and his sons themselves. These were all consecrated to God and myrrh was part of the anointing oil. Frankincense was part of the mixture of incense that was offered on the altar of incense. And the altar of incense was inside the tabernacle where you had the lampstand, the table of showbread, and it was right there before the veil that blocked mortal man from the immortal God. And that was the last thing before the veil was the altar of incense. And frankincense was put on it to go up with the prayers of the priest. Um, so we see these these components of the Exodus story in here. But then in 3 verse 9, we see that King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. So more imagery from the temple, not so much the Exodus, but from the temple in Jerusalem is that King Solomon uh, met with the king of Tyre and Lebanon. Was it Tyre, Lebanon? Yeah, Lebanon. Um, I think Tyre's in Lebanon. Wow, I just had this moment where I didn't check that out. I'm not sure. But um, it does say in First Kings chapter 5 that Solomon got wood, cedar from Lebanon to build the temple with. And so here he's made this little uh, chair for himself with, with cedar wood from Lebanon. But then also very fascinating is verses 7 and 9. You have this description of verse 7. Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. It's, that's not the thing that your kitten goes to the restroom in. Um, it's, it's describing, um, it's describing like a, a, a box-like structure that's, that's covered with curtains. So it looks like a tent and it's carried by poles by servants. So it's lifted up and carried. Now, inside this box, this tent-like structure that's being carried was a chair in which Solomon would sit. And the imagery is, Fascinating because here you have something that looks a little bit like a miniature tabernacle with Solomon inside, if you will, the king inside, God inside the tabernacle. And this whole vessel is being carried the exact same way that God commanded the priests to carry the Ark of the Covenant on poles. And you might remember the time that they did not carry the Ark of the Covenant by carrying it on poles was the time that there was tragedy. Um, they carried it on a cart pulled by oxen, and uh, King David watched, was it Uzzah? I believe it was Uzzah. The oxen stumbled, and he reached out to study the Ark, and he died. That was a procession that went badly. This is a procession, though. That's going to go wonderfully. It's going to lead to the union of God and humanity as the temple was meant to be. 
So those are the images that we see. This is not just Solomon and a woman. This is the king of the universe and his people. And he is coming for them to lead them out of the wilderness and into sanctuary, into union with him. Now we come to chapter 4, verse 1. And here we have, kind of flash forward through some ceremonial events, and now we have the wedding night itself. They are in the wedding chamber. Um, you know what? I'm going to read through this and then we'll go back and talk about some of it. So chapter four, verse one, you can imagine they're, they're, I don't know if they're sitting, standing, but they are unclothed. They're in the wedding chamber. And he says to the bride, behold, you are beautiful. My love, behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Stay with it, okay? <laughs> Leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and none, not one among them, has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. That refers not to a place, but there's so much myrrh and frankincense, there are mounds. <laughs> there's opulence here. Verse 7, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, and from the dens of lions and from the mountains of leopards. Those are peaks in Lebanon, those names. And they had great vistas and views. Gods and goddesses were often believed in pagan worlds to live up in the mountains. And these very animals named were often known to be the accompaniment of gods and goddesses. So he's calling her a goddess. Come down and be with me. High praise for her. Verse 9. You have captivated my heart, sister, my bride. Sister was just a common way back then to say you're close to someone. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrhs and aloes, with all choice spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. And now... Though the ESB doesn't have this here, it seems the bride speaks in verse 16 to the king. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden. Let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. 
In chapter 5, verse 1, the king says, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. And then either the king says this or the people outside the wedding chamber say this or some people postulate that maybe God suddenly speaks into the marriage and says this. But someone says, Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with wine. With love. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> I was like, I was like, for a moment, like, the Bible never says that. <laughs> be drunk with love. Okay. I did not encourage that. <laughs> uh, okay, so they come to the wedding chamber, and now you see what's happening, right? The king is just, look, you see, in the first few verses, there is a description from head to middle of the body, right? He just scans and just describes her, like they're gazing at one another, one another naked. And it has this progression. He's looking at her, then he's inviting her, and then she in return says, yes, come into me, and then he does. Uh, but notice also that it's not super graphic, this isn't like the way we got to describe love in the movies today, all gratuitous. And it's just simply, it's getting right to the point, but it's not doing this in a pornographic manner. And that's something that we need to perhaps reevaluate in our culture is we can talk about love and the, the pleasures of sex, but we don't have to do it making an, an idol out of it. Um, and here we have this very reverential description. Also, though, the description is unique. It's really unique. The king describes his bride. Now, I know, your hair is like a flock of goats, and you're like, I'm not seeing it, and your teeth are like lambs. I get it. Um, but what you're going to hear is that he's not describing her physical. Um, he's not trying to give us a physical picture of her. He's describing what she's become to him. So that's what we're going to look at is what does this mean? And here's what we're going to say. Naked, standing there naked, the bride becomes by grace what the king already is by nature. When she's naked before him, she becomes by grace what he is by nature. So this is going to be shown in three ways. First, the king describes her as the promised land. That's what we see in the first few verses, is we have descriptions of the promised land. Notice chapter 4, verse 1, um, the eyes like doves, we talked about that before, He's second time he said that, but then the hair part, right? The hair like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. So she's got all this hair coming down, beautiful hair. Flocks of goats is what he's describing, coming down the mountains. So you can imagine just flocks pouring down. This means there's an abundance of, flo of flocks coming down these hills. Um, then you see in chapter 2, the flock of shorn ewes. So um, the, the, the lambs have their wool taken off, so there's, there's prosperity here. You have wool to make clothing with. And then you see that there's not one of them is lost. They have twins, and none of them are dying. This is fertility. This is abundance. The lambs are growing at, at twice the rate they should. They're all twins, and none of them are dying. Um, you have the scarlet thread in chapter in verse 3, and at the end of verse 3, your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate. So here's what we have. With the flocks of goats and the undying lambs and the pomegranates, we have a description of the fertility, the fruitfulness, that God promised his people 
they would have if they obeyed him. Uh, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28 is a long chapter about the blessings and the curses that Israel would receive, depending on if they want to follow God's blessings or not. You'll get what you follow. And in Deuteronomy 28 verse 4, it encapsulates what's being described here. Deuteronomy 28 verse 4 says, Blessed be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle and the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. He's described this. He's described the pomegranates, the ground is fruitful, and the flocks and the and the sheep. They are all fruitful. And a lot of the, about the womb being fruitful, yep, there's fertility happening. So when he, the king, is looking at the bride, he's describing her as the promised land. She is becoming, by grace, what he is by nature. The promised land was given to Israel as the new Eden. Adam and Eve were exiled from the Garden of Eden for their sin. Abraham became a new Adam. He was led to this new land, which is supposed to be flowing with milk and honey. It was going to be as fruitful as the Garden of Eden. And Israel had that. They were given it. But they, like Adam and Eve, turned away from God. They ate the fruit of the serpent instead. And they, like Adam and Eve, were exiled from a fruitful land. The story had continued. But this, now the bride, is what the fruitful land, the promised land, should have been. She has been faithful to him. And he sees her becoming what the land was meant to be. The place where God's abundance and his eternal life meets with humanity on earth. But the description continues as the promised land in verse 3. When he says, your lips are like a scarlet thread. Now, yes, that, that, that describes the delicate beauty of just like a thin red mouth. But... Scarlet thread. This is only the second time in scripture that it's used. The first time scarlet thread is used is about Rahab, the prostitute at Jericho in the promised land when Israel entered. And she was told that you would be delivered if you dangle the scarlet thread out your window. Because that's the only other place in scripture that this is used, this cannot just be a coincidental description of how you look. It seems to me that Song of Songs is intentionally getting us into the promised land with this description of the wedding night. And in verse 11, you probably picked this one up as we were reading. Skipping all the way to verse 11, your lips drip nectar, my bride, honey and milk are under your tongue. And the promised land was called over and over the land flowing with milk and honey. So for these three reasons, it seems that the bride is the promised land. This is where God is going to walk with his people here in her. He's also going to describe her as the Garden of Eden. So we go to verse 12. A lot of garden imagery in here. I don't know if you picked that up. Verse 12. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. A garden locked. Now, this literally on the sexual marital level of this book refers to her virginity. She is a garden locked. The fountains are sealed. Like nothing's flowing. No one's gone in. She is locked. Um, that's referring to her virginity. But um, we also do know that the Garden of Eden was also locked when we were kicked out. The cherubim were blocking the tree of life and we were banished. So here we see an allusion to that. Um, of course, our 
yeah, it's our, it was our, yeah, our impurity that kicked us out of the garden. Um, we look at verse 13. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates. So now we have these orchards. It's describing again just this fruitfulness. You have trees and trees and you have pomegranates and fruit are growing. But verse 13 is combined with 14 where, um, wait, I'm sorry, what did we just read? Verse, yeah, verse 13 is combined with verse 15 uh, where we read a garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. So in verse 12, we had that the fountains were sealed, but now in verse 15, we have that they're flowing. The water is now living. It's moving. So things have begun to happen in the wedding chamber, if you will. Um, The garden is no longer locked. The garden is opened. And the orchards are fruitful because there is an abundance of fluid um, water. Um, In Genesis chapter 2, verse 10, we are told about a river that flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And from there, it divided into four rivers, which presumptuously go to the four corners of the earth. And so here we have the description of the waters flowing. So, um, yeah, the garden locked as an allusion to the Garden of Eden is locked to us. The orchards and the choicest fruits and the waters are an allusion to the Garden of Eden's uh, prosperity. But then in verse 13 and 14, we have all of these spices. And depending on how you count them, to me, it seems to be nine. And um, if that's so, then you have an allusion to, or the, I guess the nine fruits of the Spirit maybe are more of an allusion to these nine fruits, these nine spices. Spices, by the way, were incredibly valuable because the world stank back then. You don't have old spice. Um, and spices are not cheaply made with chemicals. They're like actually extracted from flowers, incredibly expensive, and they're coming from all around the world. So when we get the picture of what's being described here, this is no ordinary garden. All of these things together, no garden has all these things together, which is why it's the allusion to a very, very, very fruitful garden, like only one that's ever been in the history of the world. So there's all these spices um, in verse, at the end of verse 13, we have henna, we have nard, nard again, and saffron, calamus, and cinnamon, and frankincense, and myrrh, and aloes. So if you count those and you count Nard twice, you have nine of them. Um, So she's being described as a garden with these allusions to the Garden of Eden. What was the Garden of Eden? It was the place where humans and God walked together. They were in harmony and they walked together in the cool of the day. This is what the Holy of Holies is. It is where God and man meet together. It's where they're one. And this is what the promised land was supposed to be. It was the new Garden of Eden. So she's being described as all these things that we have lost. So she's the promised land. She's the Garden of Eden. And finally, she's also described, uh, albeit a little more like hiddenly, but it seems, I think it's there enough. She's also described as the Holy of Holies. Because here we go. The king and the bride are now going to do what married people do. They're going to become one and they're going to be inside of each other. And this becoming one is what God has wanted with humans at the Garden of Eden. He wanted it with Israel in the temple in the promised land. And he wants it with the church and Christ. And we're seeing this happening here. So um, she, in verse 16, invites the king 
into her. Awaken, O north wind, and come, O south wind, blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. So she was described as the Garden of Eden. Well, come and take a gander in the garden. And they consecrate the marriage. So let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. And he says, I came to my garden and he did it all. So they become one. And I think that perhaps maybe the king is the one saying, eat friends, drink, and be drunk with love. You know, it's like, it's happening. Start the party, you know, (laughs) calling out a little like, let you be festive as we come out. I don't know. Um, it, It is the king's wedding. The king does what the king does, right? Oh, boy. Okay. So, um, there are three indications for the Holy Holies here. First, three indications for the Holy Holies. First, in 5 verse 1, we see that the king says, I came to my garden. He uses the word my nine times. This is an obsessive point that is being made. So, the Bible has always had this line of, I will one day when my people are finally faithful, they're redeemed from their sins. I will be their God and they will be my people. The Bible is about this vision of God possessing us and we possessing God. But we've been alienated for a long time. And so here we see that the king, so my garden, one, my sister, two, my bride, three, my myrrh, four, my spice, five, my honeycomb, six, my honey, seven, my wine, eight, and my milk, nine. He has her. He has all of her. This is full possession. Not oppression. Possession. And Jesus comes to the earth and he liberates people who are possessed by dark spirits and demons so that they can be freed and possessed by God, which is what we were made. I love Augustine's prayer. Um, Our hearts are restless until they rest in... What you have made us for yourself, O Lord... And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. We were made for him to say, my child, all of you, mine. She's in the Holy of Holies. This is happening. God and the king and the bride are one. There's full belonging. Also, in 4.16 through 5.1, these two verses that we're in, uh, interesting, um, According to multiple commentaries, this is the center of the Song of Songs. And now people count them differently, but both of them counted the same equal number. Um, That before verse 16, you have 111 poetic lines. And after 5 verse 1, you have 111 poetic lines. So it's equally balanced around this moment where the marriage is being consummated. And so if the Song of Songs, if you want more on this, you've got to go back and hear the first message. If the Song of Songs is an invitation for um, us into the Holy of Holies, and I believe that's no coincidence, Song of Songs and Holy of Holies is a play on words. Um, if, if this is an invitation for communion with God, then what we have is at the center, we have the communion happening. The consummations happen. They become completely one. And the structure of the book upholds this as the holy place. It is here that the union is taking place. And then the third indication, so we have all the mys, we have this at the center of the book, but third and most obvious, but kind of flying under the radar, is that they are naked and unashamed. She's not covering 
anything or any herself or hiding. He's not hiding. They are naked. They're looking each other in the eyes. He's describing her body. They are naked and unashamed. And this is what we see in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. It says that when God made Eve out of his side and the two became one flesh, it then at the end of Genesis chapter 2 says, they were both naked and were not ashamed. But that has not been the case since. But here, naked and unafraid, unashamed, no hiding. You see, after Adam and Eve had sinned, we know right after that, it was all set up, right? They're naked and unafraid because in a moment they're going to be naked and very afraid. Because in chapter 3, verse 10, Adam admits this to God. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Okay? They're both naked, but no one's making a big deal about the fact they're naked. They're talking about beauty. They're talking about, wow, this is what everything was made to be. This is the promised land, the Garden of Eden, the, the Holy of Holies. So, the garden that was locked after the fall is now unlocked by the king. Yep, on a sexual level, that's true. Her virginity is unlocked. But remember, this book has two layers. And the marital layer is just to warm us up for the, for the true union that we all yearn for. That the Garden of Eden that was locked is now unlocked by this encounter with the king. And now we are naked and unafraid before him. They are in the wedding chamber. They're in the Garden of Eden. They pass into the Holy of Holies and there is no fear. First John 4, 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. That's what's here. Perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, but the bride before the king is not fearful of punishment. Fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. But we love because he first loved us. He came with the wedding procession. He claimed us out of the wilderness. He took us to the promised land. He took us to the temple. He took us behind the veil of the Holy of Holies. He took us to Christ and made us one with him. That's why there's no fear. Because Christ says, you are, be- you are fair, my beloved. I see no flaw in you. You are now the dwelling place of God. And so the bride becomes, by grace, what the king is by nature. If the Holy of Holies is where God is, the Garden of Eden is where God is, the Promised Land is where God is, well, now the bride is these things. The king sees who he is in her because she is now perfectly one with him. This is what we mean by we become by grace what God is by nature. When we allow him into our lives and we seek union with him through all our days, we begin to reflect his nature because of his grace in us. And our flaws, which we have spent so much of our life hiding, we become less and less fearful and more and more bold and more and more at peace with who we are and where we are in this world and our place in life. And we don't have to go around seeking attention and praise and making things happen our way. We don't have to go around being bridezilla because if this day isn't perfect, I'm ruined and my Instagram account will lose a million followers. And we don't have to be like that because when we are one with God, we're in the Garden of Eden. And everything is as it ought to be. The bride is made by grace what the king is by nature. So this nakedness is shameless because this nakedness is the means toward oneness. 
I can't be one with God if I'm hiding stuff from him. I have to be completely possessed by him, which means there aren't little chambers. All of it's yours, but this one key I'm going to hide in this closet. No go. The West Wing is forbidden, (laughs) if you know that movie. Um, (laughs) There is access to all, and we must be, in this sense, naked before God. We must not be hiding, putting things away, because then you are not completely one. You are divided yourself, and you're only letting God have part of the share. The only way into this communion with God is out of our coverings that hide us from God. Adam and Eve had to come out of the trees. They had to take off the fig leaves. This is what we see happening, what should have always been in the Garden of Eden. There is no more covering. There's no more hiding. And so that's why our openness and nakedness before God is without shame because he doesn't judge it and condemn it. It's just the simple way to become one with him. And we must be careful that when we come to church, we're not bringing this hypocritical self, this face for everyone to admire. I'm sorry, if you're coming here for admiration, you've got a sorry bunch of admirers, mm-hmm. myself included. <laughs> oh, it was funny. You guys didn't like that? <laughs> Just saying we're all a bunch of losers and nobodies. <laughs> Thank you, Tyler. <laughs> okay, well, I am. I don't know about you guys. Sorry, but, um, we don't come for those reasons. We, we don't pray. Um, we don't pray thinking that this is what God wants to hear from me. You will never walk with God in the garden. You will never be one with God through prayer. Prayer will always be laborious, boring, and, and legalistic if you've always got to put a face on for God. If we think that the way we pray has to be the right way, like the, that this is what God wants to hear. Um, God wants our honesty. He wants us to be open, naked, unafraid. God, I, I, yep, I get too easily frustrated and I, that moment happened and oh my goodness. But you know, often we just don't want to think about those things when we're with God. We want to think about how great we're doing. I made it three days in a row to prayer. <laughs> This is, this is our coverings. We need to be uncovered. We need to be constantly like the bride waiting for this wedding procession, waiting for this moment in that darkness of saying, have mercy on me, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. I'm unworthy. I'm looking for you and I don't even deserve to find you, but you will find me. Um, the only way into this communion is out of our coverings. Now, Right as we get to the threshold, the very center of the Song of Songs, you have this interesting double use of the word nard. And it takes a little bit of Bible know-how to understand nard's a spice, right? Um, at the end of verse 13, it says henna with nard. The beginning of verse 14, it says nard and saffron. Now, some translations just smooth that over and just say nard once. But the Hebrew has nard there twice. And this is a very interesting thing. And, and uh, bravo to the translators who are willing to go with it and put the word nard there twice, as awkward as it is. Why the double use of this spice? Who knows? But it's there. And the double use speaks of significance and importance. It's like the king is praising all this loveliness, and then he loves nard. You might remember it came up in chapter 1. And, and here he's like, you're like nard, and, and, and nard you're like. He just This is his favorite fragrance, it seems. And that leads us to maybe then say, ah, when there was a woman in the New Testament who desperately wanted to show the most extravagant love to her king that she could, 
What did she reach for? She reached for the spice named twice. Ooh, that was nice. (laughs) The spice named twice in the Song of Songs. At the holiest moment of union and connection, she wants this to be, as Christ's disciple, she wants this connection with him. And being schooled in the Song of Songs as she is, she realizes this is the most meaningful thing I can bring to him is nard. Now, nard is also very costly. It comes from India. It's grown thirteen at an elevation of 13,000 feet in the mountains of the Himalayas. It's quite an effort to get the spike nard plant and then to take the parts and to do the whole thing to, to, to distill it down to like oil and, and make it into enough oil to have this fragrance. And, and here she's got this, this alabaster flax or box. That, came, that was a stone, like a, a stone that kind of kept the scent in it. And, and she brings it to Jesus. You can just read this tonight on your own. Mark chapter 14, John chapter 12 or um, two places where you see Mary of Bethany. She brings this to Christ. And, and look, one drop of this stuff would have been sufficient to make the room fragrant. One drop. She doesn't go with one drop. She goes with a nard-nard portion. She does more than twice as much as necessary. She breaks the box open. She lets every drop of it empty upon Christ because she, like her heart, she wants That true nakedness, that true openness, she wants her heart emptied of every single drop of adoration so that Christ can fill every single space of her. She wants to be like the bride where the king says, my garden, my sister, my bride, my myrrh, and so forth. You are mine. But that only happens when we completely empty at such a great price ourselves. See, what she's doing is she's uncovering her reserve. She's uncovering her reserve and returning this shameless, extravagant love for the king by anointing him with all the nard she has. To have it is something. To have six months' salaries worth of it, Judas later criticized her, says this could have been sold for six months of wages and given to the poor. No, not that six months. Like almost a year's worth of wages. This is... This is extravagant. And, and, and we so often, we so often come to God with such reserve. Why is that? I'm not saying that we need to be like cheerleaders and jumping off of the chairs and screaming at the top of our lungs. Sometimes you're just working up a frenzy. And the only person impressed would be me, who's one of the most like docile people on this mountain. Um, well, I guess when I teach, I'm not that docile, but... Um, um, We come with such reserve because we come hiding. We come not wanting the king to have all of us. Our prayer life is reserved. Our worship of the king is reserved. Our discovery of who he is in scripture is reserved. The the time we give to him is reserved. Because all we hear is the shame mocking our extravagance. Remember what Judas said? Judas was the one who mocked. As, as she's pouring out nard upon nard upon Christ, Judas says, we could have done a good deed with that. We could have fed the poor, housed the homeless. We could have done so many good things. And Jesus corrects him and says, she is doing something beautiful to me. 
But see, when we come with such unreserved extravagance, shame of nakedness comes and says, how dare you be so bold before God? Cover yourself up. Be more reserved. Hold back a little bit. He's God after all. And who do you think you are? So Judas whispers into our ear and says, Psh, your prayers don't even matter anyways. Stop trying to pray so much. Your Sunday gathering doesn't matter. Just stay at home. Be more reserved. Yeah, sure, give God Sunday, but make sure you keep Monday through Saturday for yourself. Don't be so extravagant. That's so unrealistic. And yet, at the center of the Bible, at the center of Song of Songs, we have nard, nard. And we have a woman who takes this so preciously, she pours all of her nard upon Christ. This is the picture and the invitation scripture gives us for becoming one with God and entering into his presence and allowing him to be ours and him him to be ours and us to be his. One last thing about this extravagance is that it would have created lasting fragrance. So if one drop of this nard would have been sufficient to just beautify the room what would a whole box of it do it is very very possible that the nard put on christ this was it says in john six days before passover so this is holy week this is the beginning of holy week when she does this that christ carried this fragrance with him through all of holy week to the cross and into the tomb and equally special is that this in Mark, um, Mark, the story is told two ways. In Mark, she pours the nard on Christ's head, so it drenches his hair. In John, she pours the nard upon his feet, and she wipes it off with her hair. What I see in this is this beautiful realization that because of this extravagance, she smells the way Christ smells. Her hair has the exact same fragrance Christ's hair has all of Holy Week long, all the way to the resurrection. So, brothers and sisters, there is no shame in a love of, of that kind of extravagance. There's no shame in extravagance that perfumes us with Christ's fragrance. If the way you seek God and give your life to him all every day is considered extravagant by others, say, whatever, I've got the fragrance of Christ on me. Amen. The garden is unlocked. Be not so hesitant. You're not Peter Rabbit with Mr. McGregor waiting for you. That's not our God. He calls you mine. He wants you in. The garden is unlocked. So may we commune with him uncovered and unafraid. Our Lord and our God, make us one with you. Amen.